Thank you, Jim. And what a great reminder <clears throat> that the Word of God is not just an answer book, but it, it is an application book. Just this week, I was reading in Proverbs and came across this great proverb. Proverbs 20, verse 12 says, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. And the words in the original language go a little deeper than the English. Uh, the word for hearing refers to obedience, and the word for seeing refers to understanding. So the idea there is that uh, the, the, the eyes that see and understand and the ears that hear are to take it the next step, and that is to obey the Lord and not merely to just glean information. So, Jim, thanks for that great, great reminder. Well, we are week three in our Q&A time. These are questions that you have uh, submitted uh, like weeks ago. And I know that some of you are like wondering, when is, are you going to talk about my question? And, for, well, for some of you, the answer is today. But for some of you, it'll be next week. Believe it or not, we've still got one more week because we had so many questions and it's wonderful that we did because there's wonderful truths in the scriptures to uh, to uh, answer these and some are tough like this first one since god created everything why did he create satan talk to your grandkids about that since god created everything why did he create satan such a good question and it helps to remember that God created everything, but God did not create evil. So where did Satan come from? Where did evil come from? If God didn't, God created everything and we've got evil, where did it come from? Well, it may sound a bit hair-splitting, but the truth is God didn't create evil, but he did create the potential for evil. And why that's an important distinction is because if God did not create the potential for evil, then God's command to Adam and Eve in the garden and their choice to obey or disobey would not have been a real choice if there was not the potential for evil. So while God didn't create evil, he did create its potential. And of course, Adam and Eve did fall to it. And we know from reading Genesis 3 that the serpent um, in the skin, or Satan in the skin of the serpent, as it were, already existed at that point. And so it takes the rest of the Bible and a lot of angelology in theology to, to understand that the angels, even prior to the fall of humanity, evidently had some choice as well prior to the creation of the earth, and that angels also were given that choice, and Satan chose to rebel. Satan, actually the Hebrew word for Satan or Satan means enemy or adversary. So probably wasn't called that from beginning. This is his new name after he fell. Um, the same answer, incidentally, is, is for why God, uh, why did he create Satan or the, the angel that became Satan, could be asked, why, did God, why does God still allow evil in the world today? It's sort of the same answer, and that is he allows it so that we may choose good. Otherwise, it's not a real choice. Um, so, simplistic answer perhaps, but I wonder if there are any follow-up questions to that. Lawson is ready with the microphone if anybody's got a follow-up question to it. So, right down here in front, Lawson, we're going to just keep you moving. created the potential for evil and um, he gives us the opportunity to choose good, then if, I'm not saying anyone's perfect, but if we choose good over and over again, then why do we have to suffer so much because of such bad evil that other people do? Yeah, this is, this is a good question. I mean, we suffer because we live in a world that is uh, sub subject to the curse of Adam and Eve's original sin. And that is... it. 
it's kind of a hard answer, but it's just kind of that's the way it is in a fallen world, is that we, we do suffer and we do struggle with the decisions of others. And uh, even Jesus, who was perfect, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So, But the good news is, it won't be that way forever. So our hope and our, our goal of history is that ultimately God will deal with evil, and he will deal with it in a final way to where we will not, uh, in eternity, deal with suffering, crying, tears, pain. So it's just temporary, just for a little while. Good, good question. All right. Anybody else? All right, well, let's move on. Um, this one, short and sweet, must you be baptized to have salvation? No, you must not. You must simply believe in Jesus Christ. When the Apostle Paul was in Philippi, the Philippian jailer asked him the very simple question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved you and your household, meaning you and your household believe, you will be saved. It is simply a matter of faith in Jesus Christ. So baptism is sort of like a wedding ring. Uh, this shows that I'm married, but I can take it off, assuming I could get it off, and I'm still married. This is just a visible testimony that I am. Baptism is the same way. It's a visible testimony of something that you've already decided. Think of the thief on the cross. No opportunity there to be baptized, but Jesus told him, today you will be with me in paradise. All right, next question. Is the uncontrolled tongue, and parentheses, cursing, when angry, a sign of being unsaved? Rex is looking at me like, Lord, I hope not. <laughs> is cussing a sign that you're a pagan, in other words? Well, not necessarily. <laughs> it's a sign that you're a sinner um, who needs to be saved, whether you are or aren't. But cussing, I mean, you could ask any, any sin. Is any sin a sign that you're an unbeliever? And the answer is no, it's a sign that you're a sinner in need of a Savior or a, 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 a sinner who has been saved, but it does not necessarily mean that you are an unbeliever. Salvation only has faith as its basis. If we were to look at our lives or the sin in our lives to justify or to prove that we're sinners, then none of us would have security of salvation. It's not based on what our lives look like or the words that come out of our mouth. It's based simply on the authority of the Word of God that says, if you believe, you are saved. John writes in 1 John, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. There's no PS or footnote except if you cuss in there. There's no exception. All right. All right. Now this one. This one's fun. Will all children be raptured? Will all children be raptured? Now just think about the theology behind that question. It's tough because the Bible clearly teaches that believers will be raptured, but whenever the rapture happens, no doubt there are going to be some children who are not yet believers. So they get left behind to enter the tribulation period? Very good question. And it's a hard question because the Bible isn't dogmatic on this specific issue. But we could also sort of ask this question with regard to children who die before they can believe, um, or infant salvation. So let's think theologically just for a moment. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for all sins. First John tells us at the end of chapter 1 or the beginning of chapter 2, I'm trying to remember, but he tells us that, um, that Jesus died. He is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, and not only for the world, but for those of us who believe, or especially for those of us who believe. So John says, look, the, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross potentially paid for all sins. 
And then he says, but, you know, specifically, those of us who believe in Jesus are the ones that get the application of that. But the, but the death on the cross covered potentially everything. And we see the heart of God in that. The heart of God is that all sins potentially be paid for. Jesus didn't just die for the elect, but for the whole world. First John clearly, clearly teaches that. So when we see the heart of God, that the salvation, that the, that the death of Jesus on the cross brought potentially salvation to every person, potentially, and then, and then it is only applied by faith, what about those who can't believe? Can't believe. I don't mean who won't believe. Not the heathen in Africa. Even though he or she never hears the gospel, they still see the revelation of creation. Romans 1 tells us that is enough to condemn them because the revelation speaks of the invisible qualities of God, and it could, should draw that, that heathen in Africa to take the next step of saying, you know, whatever God there is, I need to know more about this God. And there are multiple uh, stories from missionaries and from people who have come to Christ, and even uh, think of the, the uh, Muslims today who have dreams. And the dream isn't the gospel. The dream takes them the next step to a person who shares the gospel with them. But anyway, bringing this back to children, um, those who can't believe like children or like the mentally disabled, these are those who, even if the gospel is presented to them, it doesn't compute. They can't believe. The Bible, we have to fall at that point on the character of God in that Jesus is dying on the cross for potentially the sins of the whole world would mean that the, the application of that grace would be given to uh, those who can't believe. So for kids who die, you know, abortions, for these individuals who die before they can believe, the character of God seems to be that the same grace that applies to those of us, we didn't deserve it, we did nothing to earn it, all we did was have faith. The same grace applied, is applied to those who can't have faith. Not those who won't, but those who can't. So where does that leave us with the rapture? Since the rapture basically takes the saved away, then those children, I take it, um, those children who are at that point at the rapture will also be taken. This is, this is how I read it. But again, I hold that with an open hand because the Bible doesn't give it specifically. But when we think theologically about the intent and heart of God, that seems to be what it's saying. All right, I wonder if there's any follow-up to that little hot potato. In what bodily form? In what bodily form? Yes, will they grow up in heaven? Okay. Now, that's a great question. If you're a child at the rapture, I mean, those of us who are adults um, will get, you know, a, a resurrected body that won't have back pains and my shoulder won't be hurting anymore and all that. So we've got that to look forward to. Once again, the Bible doesn't give us those specifics. Um, I think it's Philippians does say that when we see Jesus, we'll be like him. Don't know that necessarily means that we'll all be in our mid-30s in the prime of life like Jesus was, but we will have an eternal body, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that is distinct from the body that's now. It's resurrected. So I don't know. That doesn't mean that, we're, that children are necessarily going to be children for eternity. Just as we who, are, who skew a little older will probably have a body that is much more mature and young, so we could say for the young or the, the infants, they're, they're going to probably have a body that is a little more mature and older. But again, the Bible doesn't tell us that. That's just me sort of looking at it and giving you a shrug. So good follow-up question. All right, anybody else? All right, moving on then. Well, oh, yes. Okay. Okay, my question is, and people ask me that, even believers, what is my opinion 
of will I recognize that young child that died when he was three years old, mine and Mike's? And how will we recognize or will we be able to recognize people we love? And my question to her was, what about the people we love that are not here? That would bring us grief. And we're not supposed to have any grief later. So will, in your opinion or what you've studied, say we will recognize, I will see my baby, even if it's a different form. It's something I look forward to. It has comforted me. Please hope you don't take it away. No, no, <laughs> I will not. I will affirm it because oh, I, because okay. the the Bible affirms it. But once again, is, if if we if we go back to the the question of infant salvation, you know what we just talked about with regard to children in the rapture addresses that. So yes, I do think that the Bible supports, especially the character of God, that children who can't believe will be in glory. Um, there's that great statement that David made about his infant son that died when he said, I will not, he can't go to me, but I shall go to him. And that's not just a, an expectation of the inevitability of death. It, David seems to be expecting fellowship with that son. So that's a good, I don't know where David got that theology, but it's recorded in the scripture for that and it gives us that. But as far as the pain that we feel for loved ones that die as unbelievers, once again, we're, we're, we're trapped in this mindset now. And in this mindset, it is inconceivable for us to think that we would not have sorrow for those who uh, have not placed their faith in Jesus. Now we do have that sorrow. But somehow, in glory, there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. And I don't know how, but perhaps it's because we will have a great understanding of the justice of God, the love of God, the intent of God to reach out, and that that person had every opportunity, and yet, you know, God somehow is glorified in the fact. So we might rejoice in God's glory, and, uh, but how we're going to just let that go and not have tears, this is a mystery. But we're told we will. We told we are. So, all right. So let's see. Next question. This is such an interesting question. I like this one because it's about me. <laughs> what is something in the Word of God that you know now that you wish you knew when you were younger? I mean, there's so much. I was younger yesterday. So. But I'll just give a quick answer on this. I could talk for a long, long time about this, but probably the mo one of the most significant things that I didn't learn until I was a man, I didn't, never knew it as a child, was the liberating truth of Romans 6, that sin does not have to dominate my life, that uh, I'm no longer under the domination of sin. If I sin, it's because I choose to, not because I have to. That, that the Lord has indeed, through the death of Christ and because of what he's done for me as a believer, that I don't have to sin. It's, if I do it, it's my choice. In fact, it was such an eye-opening experience for me. Whenever I'd go to other people's houses and I would see a Bible on their nightstand or on their, their uh, you know, breakfast table or whatever, I'd open it up to see if Romans 6 was in their Bible too. <laughs> and it was. And to me, it was like, why has no one ever told me this before? It was that transformative for me. So Romans chapter 6 would be, I guess, one of many answers to that question. All right, so next. I hope there's no follow-up to that because what, what do you say? This one is so interesting. And the question is like a paragraph, so let me read it. And if you want to turn to Isaiah 34, Isaiah 34, that'll give us a head start and the answer, Isaiah 34. But here's the question. I've always heard that Jesus would step on the Mount of Olives first when he returns. Dr. Arnold Fruchenbaum, in the Footsteps of the Messiah, quotes Zechariah 12, verse 7, saying that Jesus will save the tents of Judah first 
prior to saving the Jews in Jerusalem. From Isaiah 34, verse 7, he writes that the tents of Judah of Christ's second coming is the city of Basra in the land of Edom. After that, in Zechariah 14, it states the Lord will stand on the Mount of Olives. So I actually think I recommended a book to you by Fruchtenbaum a few weeks back, his work on the Messiah and how the Yeshua, I think it's called, and it looks at the, the Jewishness of the Gospels. But I don't have this particular book by him, so I wasn't able to read exactly what he wrote other than just in what is in your question here. But Isaiah 34 uh, is clearly begins, if you look at Isaiah 34, it clearly begins as a prophecy against Edom, and it's judgment against Edom as representing judgment against the nations. If you look at uh, verse 2, the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, and his wrath is against all their armies, etc., etc. Verse 5, my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom. So uh, Edom is representative of God or Christ judging all the Gentile nations. Now, you also see this in verse 6, the end of verse 6. The Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. But the, um, there's nothing about the tents of Judah here. And I wonder if maybe he's also referring to Isaiah 63. So turn there, if you would. Isaiah 63 asks a question. It starts in verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And then it, the Lord says, it is I. So, and it goes into the judgment of God. So this isn't, I, I just don't see anywhere in Isaiah or Zechariah or the scriptures that say that even though it says that he will judge or save the tents of Judah first, that the tents of Judah, as it were, are anything other than the tribe of Judah. And that is in Israel. And, you know, for the Lord to land on Mount of Olives does not contradict that at all. In fact, I think it supports it. Um, so I'm just not sure I follow the, the, the logic here of the question, or at least this man's perspective on this, as, just as it's written. Um, the Bible clearly tells us in Zechariah 14 that when the Lord comes, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And all this business about judging Basra and Edom prior to that is simply Jesus' judgment on the nations prior to him coming. doesn't mean that his feet touch down in, in Edom or modern Jordan. It just means that he deals with the Gentile nations, and he does that just by speaking. The sword comes from his mouth, and the enemies are destroyed. So I probably didn't answer what you're asking, but I wonder if there is any follow-up question that I could not answer as well. After or verse 7, where it's talking about wild oxen shall also fall with them. Is that the one you were referring to? Uh, I don't know that I read that one, but I might have mentioned that verse. But you, I thought you said 34, 7. Verse 6. Oh, okay. Sorry, verse okay. 6. Okay. That was all. Yeah, I may have said 7. I meant 6. Okay. You have to interpret me. Okay. <laughs> okay, here's a fun question. Uh, I grew up eating fish on Friday. We were never Catholic. Where does that come from? <laughs> yes, the school cafeteria, that's the answer. Well, I mean, many of us in certain Protestant denominations have no idea what this question is asking. I grew up Baptist, and we could eat anything. So it was never a problem. 
But the tradition of eating fish on Friday does have its roots in Catholicism, even though some Protestants, like Methodists, Episcopals, Lutherans, uh, do practice, some do, do practice uh, not eating meat on Friday, just eating fish. And the thought was that fish wasn't considered meat in the same way as other meat is because fish aren't land animals. And the thought also is, as I've come to understand, that the, um, the reason that meat was not eaten is somehow to honor the sacrifice of Jesus that was on a Friday. So it is a little uh, unusual to us. From our perspective, I'm sure there was a good reason for it when it first came up. But as many traditions go, it, they just keep going, and you're not real sure why we do what we do. So anyway. All right. I'm not even going to ask for follow-ups on that because I couldn't answer anything. All right. You got a follow-up? Yeah. I don't know if anybody remembers, but um, calendars used to have a fish at the top of Friday all the way through every year. Uh, I don't know when that changed, and I'm wondering if anybody remembers. I think it was in either the late 60s or early 70s, and I don't know if that had to do with the Catholic Church changing that opinion, or what? Does anybody? Yeah. I don't know, Rich. Okay. Clyde's got his hand up. I remember. The lunchroom said, eat your lunch, Clyde, and be quiet. So why haven't you done that? I'm not eating lunch. <laughs> All right, next question. Next question. <laughs> I don't want to grind our wheels too much on this because we've got, a, we've got a whole lot more that matters to talk about. Go ahead. It goes back to Europe. Um, it was from, came out of the Renaissance. Uh, to do with eating fish, also had to do with a shortage of meat. It was in honor of uh, Good Friday. And I did not grow up in Texas. I'm an East Coast Yankee. And I want to tell you, if you're from the East Coast, you're well familiar with fish on Friday. It's okay. not that much around here. I, I moved into a whole different culture here 50 years ago. But if you're on the East Coast, yeah, you understand that. All right. So Rich has been buying Yankee calendars. That's, that's the problem. <laughs> okay, turn to John 13, John chapter 13, for the next question. And here's the question. How do we show our love to others? And then the, in parentheses, it says Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. How do we show our love to others in order that God will be glorified? Why is it called a new command? Why is love called a new command? So the Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 is that passage, you remember, that says, uh, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. So how do we do that? And then why is it called a new command? John 13. Look at John 13 down at verse 34. This is where Jesus says it. Jesus says, a new commandment, I give to you that you love one another, even as I have, lo have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The question is, why is this a new commandment when it isn't a new commandment? Remember, even in the Gospels prior to this, people asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he's quoting from Leviticus, Leviticus 19.18. But the difference, the new part of it, is if you look at those two commands, 19, Leviticus says that the standard is you love one another as yourself. We call that what? The golden rule, right. Brotherly love, but golden rule. What's the golden rule? Love your, your brother as yourself. Uh, the problem with that is that what if you don't love yourself that great? And we, we have a pretty jaded view of uh, what loving ourselves looks like. It's a good rule of thumb, obviously. It's scripture. 
But Jesus took it up a level. And here's what's new. Look at verse 35 again, where he says, uh, verse 34, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. That's the new part. Now you're not just loving someone as yourself. You're loving one another. You're loving someone else sacrificially, as I have loved you. In fact, the word agape, the verb love, is a, is a verb that John pours so much wonderful meaning into that talks about sacrificial love. So what makes Jesus's command new is to do it as Jesus did, sacrificially loving one another. Okay? Anybody got a follow-up on that question? Excellent question. All right, next question. Why do we observe communion, bread and wine, or juice, literally, but foot washing only figuratively? Hmm. Both occurred in the upper room. Both were commands to the disciples. And yet, when's the last time you've had your feet washed, I mean by somebody else? Right, exactly. How do we, how do, we do that? Why do we observe communion literally, but fit, fit, fish washing? Now I'm stuck on that. Foot washing, only figuratively. Well, we're in John 13, so already, and this is where this happens. Interestingly, the foot washing incident is only recorded in John, and it begins at verse 12. So let's read this, and then we'll talk about it. Uh, 13 verse 12 says, When he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So here we've got a clear command from Jesus to wash one another's feet. And yet we don't do it, at least literally. Why not? Very good question. Um, Again, John is the only gospel that records this. Remember, John is written probably in the 90s, like at the end of John's life. And so we have had all three Gospels already written prior to this. No one mentions foot washing. We would have had all the epistles of Paul already written. Basically, all the Bible except the John contributions are written prior to this. Probably at the end of John's life, he wrote John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. So... Prior to this mentioning of John of this story, the church was not aware, uh, except perhaps through the oral tradition, of this incident of the foot washing. They were aware. The oral tradition would have been very, very clear. So why does John mention it here, and why don't we do it? Well, the, the difference between communion and foot washing, we can see in the commands of Christ, is in the language, uh, for one thing. We'll start with the language. But the difference is... With communion, Jesus said, take, eat, drink. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. So it's very clear, eat, drink, do this in remembrance of me. But for foot washing, he uses a different phrase or a different word. And he says it in verse 15. He says, you need to know why. He says, if I then the Lord, verse 14, if I then the Lord and teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash another's, one another's feet. Verse 15, for, in other words, he's about to explain, I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. The word here for example in the original language is a word that means pattern. I gave you an illustration. He doesn't say, do this. He says, I've given you an example of what I want you to do. And this example is washing feet. Um, Luke 22, you don't have to turn there, but if you were, Luke 22 is probably Luke's version of Jesus' takeaway from the foot washing. And in Luke 22, the upper room conversation, the disciples had just been arguing among themselves who was the greatest. 
And Jesus basically says, the greatest is the servant. That's what he says in Luke. And here in John, he gives them an example now of what he's taught them. The greatest is the servant. The greatest washed feet. In fact, that's what he says here in verse 13 to 14. You call me teacher and Lord, and yet I am here as one who serves. I, I washed your feet as an example that you need to wash one another's feet, or you need to be a humble servant just as I have been to you. This is the interpretation that the church, the Orthodox Church, the, the solid Christian church has taken all throughout the centuries. Notable exceptions, but most people interpret this, that Jesus didn't give us ordinance number three. You've got baptism, Lord's Supper, and foot washing. But, but foot washing is an example or is a pattern, an illustration that Jesus wants these people who feel great to actually be servants. That's, that's the whole point. It's also worth noting that uh, Jesus washed Judas's feet. And this would not have been something appropriate if it is an ordinance for the church, because Judas wasn't saved. On the other hand, with the Lord's Supper, uh, Jesus waited until Judas had departed and then instituted the Lord's Supper just for believers. So there is a very interesting distinction there as well. The only other incident of foot washing in the whole New Testament is that mentioned by Paul in 1 Timothy 5, verse 10, regarding widows, the qualifications for widows to be on the list of the church to receive financial help. And one of the things, you know, husband of one wife, doing this, doing that, and if she has washed the saints' feet. So there is this, there was this tradition even prior to John that um, to wash someone's feet is to be a servant. And oh, the whole list, I looked at that list again this morning just to make sure, the whole list is in the context outside the church. All these things to do in the home and in the community and washing the saints' feet is representative of what you do with other believers outside the context of church, which would not be appropriate if it were an ordinance done for the church. Okay, any follow-up on that? Very, very good question. Okay, in the back. Thank you. Uh, I was just curious, like, is it like an example, just like he was serving, serving them? Or can you have a little more clarification on kind of like, how to follow that example. I, I see it like serving others and trying to. Exactly. It, it, that's a great, great follow-up. The, the example is not a, obviously not accustomed, what we're accustomed to. Uh, we, you know, back in that day, everyone wore sandals. You'd walk around, your feet would get dirty. And so you would have, the custom was that you'd have a servant when you entered a home with a pail of water and a towel and the servant would wash the feet of the guests so that they would feel refreshed and they'd come in and wouldn't get your house all dirty. But, you know, great people didn't do that job. Servants did that job, which is why when Jesus washed Peter's feet, if we were to look uh, back up in verse 6, Peter got all upset that Jesus was washing his feet. He says, you shall never wash my feet. So you are, you know, you're the Lord. You're not a foot washer. And Jesus says, yes, I am. I'm here to be a servant. So think of a modern equivalent. I don't know. What could that be? You know, a toilet washer? I mean, I'm not just making a joke, but think of something that is menial, that is below you. It was below Peter to have his feet washed by Jesus. And Jesus says, that's who I am. I'm a servant, and that's who you need to be. So good question. All right, any others? Okay, so next question. Explain the difference between the first and second commandments. The second seems a little redundant unless God is saying not to try and develop anything to represent him and then bow down to it, maybe because mankind was created in the image of God. So speaking of the first two of the Ten Commandments uh, recorded back in Exodus 20, the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second is, don't make any as the King James says, graven image, basically any uh, carved image to bow down to it. The difference basically is that the first 
command emphasizes that we worship only one God. The second command is you're not going to have anything representing uh, heaven and earth in order to worship that thing. Interesting that God would have in the tabernacle representatives of angels. So there, there are carved images even in God's plan. But the difference is you don't bow down and worship them. You don't, uh, you don't give homage to an idol. So the difference is subtle, but God felt it was important to give a whole second commandment to that. You don't worship any, any image, um, even if it represents something in heaven. Okay? Short answer. All right. We may actually get through the whole list. Yes. And uh, possibly, you know, uh, copying things out of the Bible to put into their religion that they say you cannot have. You know, they just do use geometric shapes, but they don't have picture or pictures of flowers or people or anything. They just keep that uh, no image of things like God has made in, in their. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure why the Muslims do it that way. So I'm not even going to guess. Okay. <laughs> All right, so next question. I heard someone say that a pastor is not qualified. Oh, oh, I heard someone say that he is not qualified because of his family and home, meaning to be a pastor. My question is, can your family members disqualify you from serving the Lord, or do you yourself make yourself disqualified due to your own sinfulness. So can your family disqualify you? Boy, what a threat that would be, wouldn't it? <laughs> Dad, you give me some candy, or I'm going to throw such a fit that you won't be qualified to serve. What is this, what is this asking? Well, the question comes from a statement that's made in 1 Timothy 3. So if you want to turn to 1 Timothy 3, you can or you may just be familiar with it. But 1 Timothy 3 basically says that a pastor, let me get there and not try to talk. A pastor or an overseer has qualifications, and there's a number of them. It begins in verse 2. Um, above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And it goes on. Not a new convert, must have a good reputation, etc. So each one of these qualifications is a qualification for the pastor. It's not a qualification for the pastor's family. Uh, this shows, though, that he must manage his own household while keeping his children under control because they will need to be kept under control. I was a pastor for 12 years, at least as a vocation. My children needed to be kept under control. We had two daughters with a very strong, sinful nature. They needed it, and so did yours. And when we were kids, so did we. This is a command for the pastor to make sure that he is being a good father and not just a good pastor or whatever. And the verse 5 is excellent where he says, If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? The thought there is, if he can't, I think Howard Hendricks said it so well, he said, if your Christianity doesn't work at home, don't export it. <laughs> Very good. And often you see the, the, the reputation of preacher's kids as being negative. Why, would it be, why wouldn't it be anything other than a positive experience? Because often, not every time, but often the, the father or the preacher comes off as a hypocrite to the, to the kids, and which takes us right back to 1 Timothy 3. This is a command that the father be a good father, and that he be a good parent, and that he take care of his children who need taking care of. Now, if we look at Titus, a couple of books to the right, look at Titus chapter 1, 
and you see it written a little differently. Titus chapter 1 refers to elders, of which the overseer is one of the elders. But Titus chapter 1 verse 6 says, If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. He goes on. But so Titus says here that children are to believe. Literally, the original language says having children who are faithful. Now, the New American Standard has done a very unusual thing here in translating it this way. Uh, children who believe. This implies they have to be saved. And uh, the original text, though, says children who are faithful. So it could just mean obedient children. In fact, the Net Bible, I think, translates it that way. Anybody have a different translation for that, other than implying salvation? No? Well, I know the Nut Bible says faithful. Um, but anyway, so having children who believe, it, I mean, it doesn't necessarily, the, the original language doesn't necessarily require that they're saved, but it does require that they're faithful. Once again, that harmonizes with 1 Timothy 3, that the good father is going to make sure that his children um, or stay under control. It is in Ryrie's footnote. What does it say? It says, uh, may mean believing children is translated here or faithful children, even though unbelievers. Okay, so faithful children, even though unbelievers. Thank you, Dr. Ryrie. So, all that to say, um, your family doesn't necessarily disqualify you, but your family often represents what kind of a job you're doing. And it, it could raise a flag that you at least need to be uh, questioned or approached about the matter. So, okay, any follow-up question to that? We've got a couple minutes left and one more very long question. So I'm going to plow on. Okay, can we go like five over? Harry says yes, and he's the overseer here, so. <laughs> Do your children believe, by the way? No, 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 no. Okay, here's the question. Listen carefully to this question. I probably shouldn't have put it last, but it's because it's involved. I have a great niece, for purposes of this exchange, I will call her Karen, not her real name, who is very far left and very woke. I made a vain attempt a year earlier. I'm summarizing the, what she says. I made a vain attempt a year earlier to try to influence her. In my attempt to talk to Karen, I tried to speak to her Christian. I tried to speak to her Christian upbringing, especially around the subject of abortion, feminism, and Christian morals and values. My attempt to address her from a Christian perspective was met with great resistance. I was especially concerned about her comments regarding the Old Testament scenarios of slaughtering enemies. I'm sure this does seem very brutal if read by someone having a very limited view of God. There should be an understanding he's not only loving but also a God of judgment. Now to my question, what is your advice when we as Christians are addressing this woke generation about sensitive social topics? What should be our response to those who view God based on Old Testament scenarios? So obviously a hard, hard, hard question and obviously very relevant to where we are today. I think a lot of us wonder and struggle about this, um, but if we just back up from the the noise and the, the firestorm of the issues as they are right if, as we look at these issues. When we get right into them, all of a sudden the water gets real muddy. But if we back up real nice and high and say, what is the Bible wanting us to major on? To not, to not major on the minors, but to major on the majors. It doesn't mean the minors aren't worthy of discussion, but what are the majors? Think about when the Apostle Paul, think about the Apostle Paul's context. The Apostle Paul lived in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had lots of corruption. In fact, the Caesars or the emperors were very corrupt at times. Uh, many of them even have not only having homosexual uh, relationships, but also what we would call pedophile relationships that were sanctioned and allowed because he's the Caesar and who's going to say anything. All this to say, Paul was in a very corrupt society. In fact, when Paul was killed under the, uh, the, uh, the rule of Nero, it was about as bad as it could be. Same with uh, Peter, killed under Rome's 
or Nero's rule. And yet Paul's missionary journeys, when he went around, what was his emphasis? When Paul wrote letters to the churches for their action, what was his emphasis? It wasn't so much social. It was gospel. He kept first things first. And now again, that doesn't mean that we don't deal with the other issues. It, it was Christians who helped overturn Roe v. Wade. It was Christians back during the time of uh, the 19th century that helped the abolition of slaves, slavery. So Christians have been involved. In fact, many of the social things that have gone well throughout history have been because of Christians getting involved. But these are, in the grand sense of things, minors. The major is the gospel, and this is our major calling. So to answer your question about what to talk to about Karen, and there's a lot here that I didn't read about what, what, what Karen said, what I said, what Karen said, what I said, and this sort of tennis match back and forth about moral issues and society issues. But the basic issue, at least from what I've read in your exchange, was never addressed. That is, what is Karen going to do with her sin when she stands before a God who is holy? Forget her view on abortion. Forget her view on Black Lives Matter. Forget everything that's woke about today's society and ask the person, when you stand before God, who is holy, what are you going to do with your sin? That is, the, that is the basic issue. And if you just deal with that one thing, and once the gospel has been shared, um, then you just love them. You just love them until they accept the gospel. But once they are believers, and then they have the Holy Spirit working within them, and they're in the Bible, then the thought patterns begin to change, and the mind begins to be renewed. But when our world sees us as a bunch of Bible-thumping hypocrites, that all we care about is, here's all the sin you're doing, when do they hear the gospel? That is what we're called to. That was Paul's emphasis, and that should be our main emphasis. So, what is your advice when we Christians are addressing this woke generation about sensitive social topics? You could say, my opinion, just like you have your opinion, is a biblical opinion, and I read the Bible to say this, and you can say it. But to me, the bigger issue is not what do we believe about all these social things. The more basic issue is, is God holy? Because if he's holy, we will stand before him one day with our sin, and what are we going to do with it? And just lay that out and challenge them to say, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for my sins. Put yourself out there as well. And then allow the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. And not only bringing them to Christ, but also bringing them to a biblical perspective on all these current issues. Not easy, but that's, that's uh, what I see the scripture urging us to do. All right, any follow-ups to that? No? Good. <laughs> All right, Harry, come on up and bless us out. We've got one more week. I think we'll finish the questions up next time. So, Thanks, Wayne. It's been very enlightening. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.